On today's show, we bring together three important themes that will help you to live a better life now if everything goes great, and also to live a better life later if times get tough. And those three themes are these. Number one, how could you build a financial independence plan for yourself, even with few advantages in your background, through blue water sailing? Number two, could you build an independent source of income for yourself through a niche of self-publishing? And number three, could these plans help you to live an independent life now, as well as protect you in case we face as a culture and a society the so-called end of the world as we know it? Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets. This is episode 202 of the show. And today I have an interview with an author named Matthew Bracken, author of uh, an excellent series, if you're into political thrilling, thriller uh, fiction, author of the Enemies Foreign and Domestic series, as well as the book Castigo K. Going to talk about building a life of freedom in a dystopian future. I've been a fan of Matthew Bracken's work for quite a while since I found it uh, accidentally <laughs> a couple of years ago. You hear a little bit of that story in today's show, uh, but I really enjoyed his novels. I, I enjoy every now and then if I'm going to read a novel, uh, I enjoy often a political thriller or some sort of military thriller or uh, I have a soft spot for dystopian fiction. It's kind of an interesting world because as a financial planner, you have to dually function both in a world of optimism and in a world of pessimism. And so I find uh, this type of fiction to be a fun way for me to go back and forth between optimism and, and pessimism. I don't necessarily love those labels of categories. In my mind, uh, proper approach is realism, which is to go back and forth between both of them continually. Maybe that's a more accurate way to do it. Uh, but with everything of financial planning, usually we spend all of our time thinking about, well, here's exactly the perfect future that I want. But sometimes there are circumstances that are beyond your control that make life a little bit tougher. Uh, so it's important, I think, to think about how do I make sure that my plans work? Well, I often see financial planning themes even in fiction. And that was the initial genesis of this show was a financial independence plan for a male in his early 30s who came from a uh, laboring job background who was able to build financial independence <laughs> through, a sa through sailing, uh, through refurbishing a sailboat. And after finding this first novel and going to the author's website and finding out that he had written additional novels, uh, which I later got and read and recommended, uh, or I recommend to you, uh, they're excellent novels if you're into this genre of fiction. Uh, I wanted to talk to him and I found an essay that he'd written called Get Yourself a 30-Footer and Go, which is about how to build a lifestyle of freedom through yourself for yourself with sailing. And that's the initial part of this interview, and it's quite excellent to talk about some of the practical details. Uh, and to some of you, this might be an appealing course of action for you to build uh, and achieve financial independence in very short order. We've talked about this a few times on the show, uh, and I think it, uh, this show is particularly valuable because I'm speaking with somebody who's done it. Matthew Bracken is a former uh, naval uh, officer, or, or uh, what's the word for a non-officer? I don't, I don't remember. I don't know his rank. 
I guess I Navy service person or whatever the word is, Navy employee. I don't know. Sorry, Matt. I don't know the right name for it. Uh, also a member of the SEAL teams back in the day, uh, back when they were UDT uh, and the UDT and SEAL teams. A lot of experience in different theaters of conflict in his career. You can find some information about that on his website. Uh, but since that time, he took his love of the water and built for himself his own escape hatch, as he would call it. He actually built a 48-foot steel sailing boat uh, to be able to do long-distance ocean cruising and still owns and sails that boat. He went on to build a career for himself writing fiction and self-publishing it building and finding his own audience. And as a satisfied reader of his books, I can affirm and attest to uh, the fun and the ability of, of, uh, of an author to reach their audience. I've read uh, his four major novels, and if he publishes another one, I'll buy it immediately and read it. <laughs> and I think it's an interesting idea that I wanted to cover here, but I wanted to cover it with an author who had actually done it, how to build an independent livelihood for yourself through self-publishing. Uh, and that's the second part of today's show. And then in the third and final part, uh, Bracken's a bit of a, a pessim. He's a pretty hardcore pessimistic guy. And so we talk a little bit about how to protect yourself from the end of the world as we know it. And uh, both he and I hope that he's wrong, but it's a worthy conversation to think about in case he's not. Uh, so I hope that you enjoy this interview. I really enjoyed recording it, uh, and I hope that you can learn and benefit. Think about the themes and the topics that are presented herein and consider how they might be applied to your life in your situation. So Matt, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate your making time to be with me today. Good to be here. Glad to. I've been looking forward to having you on the show, and what's interesting is when I made mention to a couple of listeners of the show that I was having you on, I found out that I wasn't the only one familiar with your work. Uh, I became familiar with your work through reading your novels, and I figured out how I did it. It was back in 2012 when you first put, uh, I think, Enemies Foreign and Domestic up on the free, uh, on, on the free list for Amazon. And at that point in time, I downloaded it, and I just download free books to my Kindle from time to time. Didn't read it for months and months, and then was sitting on an airplane, and I said, ah, let, let's read this one. And he, you know, I think it's got a picture of an AR-15 or something on the cover. And I said, well, let's see what this is about. So I started reading it, and all of a sudden, I said, wait a second. This is a great book. What was this thing doing on the free When list? was it written? And when was it written? Exactly. And when was it written? Go back. When, oh, 2003. Actually, most of it I wrote before 9-11. Wow. And uh, for people that are familiar with the book, I had to do kind of a mid-course, uh, not rewrite, but overwrite to include 9-11 in it. And I was very fortunate. And this is something about self-publishing, and it kind of ties into the whole subject today about being financially independent that I'm really, I'm really keyed in on. We'll talk about it from the get yourself a 30-footer and go and other things like that. But yeah, I, I um, was lucky and fortunate with my timing of self-publishing. And running the whole show. What do you, you need an agent? Hello? You right. need to go to New York? No, you don't. You know, you can make, you got Adobe Acrobat, make a PDF that's print ready and print some damn books. Right. Or put them on ebooks. Anyway, yeah, the, um, I wrote most of that before 9 11, and, and this is going to why self publishing, another advantage people don't think about. If I was in the queue at real world, you know, the real dinosaur New York publishing company, wow, Matt's got a real contract now. By the time that between the, in that length of time between finishing the manuscript and it actually hitting the shelves, I would have had a novel out that didn't include 9/11 that came out post 9/11, and you've got an orphan. It's automatically a dodo bird because you know you have no relevance 
if you're coming out with a novel that has to do with terrorism and it's, you know, now that, you know, post 9-11 and you didn't include 9-11. So I could have a turnaround and just like months before you're ready to bang out books, you can include the latest stuff in there. You know, in, the, in uh, Foreign Enemies and Traitors, I was actually writing it as uh, uh, kind of the Hillary stand in, um, you know, Bill uh, Slick, Slick, uh, whatever's uh, his wife is going to be Slick the president. <laughs> when I saw how the convention went, I was able to do, a, you know, 80 percent done novels, change it completely to Jamal Tambor. You know, and now you can't do that if you've got a real publishing contract up in New York City. <laughs> right. You're just stuck writing the, you know, the Hillary novel just as uh, Obama's elected. So I had, you know, was able to to late mid-course correct and get out something right as the Obama comes in with President Jamal Tambor. It's just another tip out there, folks, for why self-publishing is the way to go and why you don't need to hook up with real corporations anymore. All right. You All right. can do it yourself. So I want to talk about self-publishing, but before we get to that, because um, that is on, on my list of, t of topics, I want to kick it off with a little bit of your background, just as means of introduction. And how did you wind up uh, in the world that you are today writing dystopian fiction? I guess I had a really in, uh, interesting childhood in terms of the, um, you know, getting doing some sailing before I was even in the Navy, then... Um, being fortunate enough to be a Navy SEAL for, um, you know, a couple of years, not career. I was paying for college, you know, and it was a deal in those days. Uh, you know, so your, your ensign and JG and lieutenant years, uh, would be pay, would be basically a payback for your college, which is all I was, I was never career oriented. You know, I was, I wanted to uh, go to college, Navy paid for college. It didn't look like much fun being a ship driver. My eyes weren't good enough to fly, you know, fighters, so I saw the coolest thing around that looked to me most appealing was SEAL Team. I did that when I was a shooter. I didn't want to then become a staff officer. And, you know, all of my other ensigns that went out of buds with me became captains if they stayed in for 20. Because mm -hmm. they, they had really caught the wave of special operations, you know, going from the redheaded stepchild trying to beg for bullets to being like, you know, the prima donna leader of right. the show. You know, a raid on Osama bin Laden. Who is it? <laughs> the SEALs. You know, no matter what it is, who's right. the, you know, who saves the Maersk, Alabama? SEALs. Right. We used to be called the silent option. It was, you know, like, <laughs> we're all like low key, like don't show our pictures. Now it's like <laughs> too much, man, too much. Anyway, yeah, that, that um, gave me a lot of good influences for writing novels about this type of a genre and subject. But more than even being a SEAL for a career, because I was a SEAL for like the shooter, the shooter portion when you're a junior officer, um, the, 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 the thing that I wanted to do always was sail and write novels from the time I was in college. Before I was in college, one of my, my oldest sister had a sailboat, and we sailed around the Caribbean with her Welsh husband, and I saw the whole world of people out cruising. They're not, they're not uh, working for a living, so to speak. You know what I mean? They don't punch a clock. They don't commute. They're on a... You know, this is in the early 70s. We're on 50-foot plywood trimarans with homemade wind generators and, you know, very inefficient solar panels that were heavy. But they worked. Wow. You know, the same PV crystals were there, just not as refined and heavier. But And I said, you know, this is a viable alternative. So you have a house. That's your boat. It's your transportation. It's slow transportation, but sometimes that's good. It gives you time to digest in between. You know, it's not like you get take off in a jet. 
you know, you're in a firefight in Baghdad. And then 10 hours later, you're in San Diego and your friends are all like, hey, let's go surfing. And you're like, I'm a little jittery. I just was in a firefight 12 hours ago. A sailboat gives you time to decompress and and uh, actualize, you know, and let your um, you know, your mind uh, process everything from where you've been. Anyway, I wanted to write novels. I wanted to sail sailboats. And uh, that's, you know, I had some good luck along the way that permitted me to do these things without getting real personal because my wife hates that. But um, I, I uh, started writing my first novels in college. The only way was through big New York media. And it closer I got to spending a lot of my life writing manuscripts, I realized it's a fool's errand. It's like, you know, being a rube that comes in for the, you know, pay $100 for the hole-in-one contest. You know, for right. really, yeah, I'll practice a year for that. So I've read... <laughs> I've read four of your books, and so I read your Enemies, Foreign, and Domestic trilogy, and then your Castigo K book. Have you published others in addition to those four? Um, I'm I'm working on a follow-on, another Dan Kilmer novel, okay, which is a, a slightly different dystopia than Enemies, Foreign, and Domestic. Number one, I wanted to get outside of uh, Continental Lower Forty Eight. Um, every dystopia novel in the world kicking around <laughs> is like you know. I'm in the rubble of Indianapolis after right. the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> I don't care. I didn't like it when it was good. You know, I don't definitely don't want to be there when it's worse. <laughs> you know, Baltimore, that's where I'm from. No, thanks. I don't want to, I don't want my heroes in the rubble of Baltimore. Okay. It's just let everybody else can have that. I, so I thought this is a way to uh, have a character that has to be an expat. He has to be because his only asset is something that, which is a big sailboat that he kind of inherits, kind of works for. If he comes back to the United States with his only asset, banks are gone, all everything that's electronic is gone, you know, which doesn't leave much, all of international banking gone. If he comes back to the United States, he's on a list, the boat will be taken. So why he can't go back to the United States. So everything he does has to be someplace else. The first novel was set in Miami and Fort Lauderdale, and that was kind of to give it a grounding that the initial reader can say, okay, I know who this guy is. I've been to Miami. I went to, you know, these places. I've been to the Bahamas, maybe some or places like the Bahamas. I can relate to that. And it's not like grid down apocalyptic. It's like kind of like Southern California today, you know, like water rationing and electricity rationing, <laughs> civil war ready to break out. You know, the fuse is right next to the dynamite. <laughs> so it's sort of like Baltimore in August this summer. You know? Right, right. <laughs> Cleveland. <laughs> So you, but, when, the next novels are, are further afield. So the way that I wanted to reach out to you on the personal finance basis, though, was was how you began your uh, enemies foreign and domestic trilogy, and your main protagonist uh, in the first book is a young man who goes up and spends a few years working in the oil feeds, fields of Alaska. I think it was Anwar, if memory, memory is correct. It's saves, like projecting forward stuff. So oh, right. Facts, <laughs> so uh, saves his money for a few years, works like crazy, you know, lives on the cheap out in the oil fields, reads, reads for his only source of entertainment, saves right. money, and then comes back and buys a cheap sailboat and is getting ready to head off down to the Caribbean and basically be financially independent at an early age. And then I came back and found out you had written an entire novel, or excuse me, an essay, giving that as a financial plan. So I'm interested, share the genesis of that idea, and is that actually practical for people to do that in today's world? It's totally practical with a few caveats. Number one, um, and as I'm 58, I'm in 
good shape for my age. I can still jog around the block and do stuff like that. Uh, and 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 a lot of my peers can't, you know. And I'm so I'm lucky. I got the I won the DNA lottery in that sense, you know. And I didn't get blown up over in the sandbox or, you know, because I wasn't there. Thank you know. So I mean, I was lucky. I've been lucky. But but um, even at a very young age, I saw people with my own eyes living on sailboats, and it seemed like well, if the reason that you're tied to one place and you're basically a slave to banks is because of a mortgage. And because everybody tells you that a mortgage makes the best financial sense because it's the most bang for your buck because goodness knows you're in the middle of the bell-shaped curve with the rest of the lab, you know, the, the rodents running on wheels to run the whole turbine for the whole shebang. You know, get on that wheel and run. 30 years is will go like quick in right. your house. <laughs> and I said, I don't want that. that I, I came up when I was very young with a continuum that has like a supermax underground jail cell on one end and a sailboat on the other and you kind of like moved like sailboat but you're in the marina but you're ready to go offshore you know and then you got like a houseboat well you can move around but not offshore and you slide to the house near the canal and etc cetera, etc cetera, and you keep going over most of it is just in townhouses and suburbia until you're at a supermax so i was very wall phobic for a long time you know i i sailboats are have walls obviously but you live outside and you live with the whole horizon and and um the idea of you can now be mobile right it's not like you've got something that you can't take you can take it anywhere you want take it's it, it gives you time to process it's nice to take going slow to go places it's nice if you're physically fit enough you know i mean it's assuming a lot but to be able to be free you have to not have that mortgage you got to cut that mortgage well, you don't want to live in a van down by the river either. You know, you don't want to live in a converted uh, suburban or a school bus in Alaska. Maybe you do, and I'm not knocking people that do. I've known people that made cool houses out of cargo containers, folks. You know, like split levels on the train with patios, but it's cargo containers delivered on site. <laughs> Welding torch, you're good to go. Plywood, two by four. It's not rocket science. But anyway, I like to move around, so I you know, would choose to have a boat over a container uh, place in the mountains. Um, it's, it, you're not, you don't have to work if you don't have a mortgage, right? That thousand, two thousand, whatever it is, bucks a month, you pay out of your, that, that your nut or whatever you call it, your monthly that you got to make. Well, what if you don't have that? So if you have a boat and you own it outright, you've got your transportation and your habitation combined in one module. You're free. You're off the grid. You know, you're off the radar. You're, there are people right now today sailing around Madagascar, Americans, French, Germans, Dutch. You know, I've, I've met – it's just reality. I mean, I, anybody interested in this, there's a great – actually a great website called Cruisers Forum that um, just go to their, you know, whatever, like the whatever's revolving around page, you know, like the, the threads that are right now being kicked around and see the real-world issues of people in the middle of nowhere dealing with, like, satcoms and – and solar panels and and you know should I get a single sideband or should I get a satcom phone you know how do you how do you cost that out and functionality of those two ways of being in communication in the middle of everywhere on the planet now you make your own electricity of course you catch your own water or you have a water maker reverse osmosis you know or you do other ways or you just carry huge amounts of water you're independent you're, you're a free person and the thing that's cool about it is it's not if, you know, men work till you're 40 at, you know, ace rocket law firm 
and make a huge amount of money, and then you can buy a 50-footer and be a king. It's not like that at all. You can be 30 and get a 30-footer for $30,000 and go Right. next week. Right. You know, next week. <laughs> so you built your own boat. Do you recommend that as a course of action, or do you recommend somebody start with just buying something that someone else has already made? It, 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 unless you come at it as, like, I'm a welder, and I just love welding, and I had this dream to weld a boat. I would say no. There are so many fiberglass boats. That a, a new fiberglass 35-footer might cost a quarter of a million dollars, plus or minus 50% from, like, bargain to – you know, from from like Chevy to to BMW, but they're competing with the last forty years worth of fiberglass thirty-five footers that are still around unless they got blown up or burned. And no matter how bad cosmetically they get, you know, ninety percent of the time they can be brought back to looking showroom with just you know elbow grease paint, you know, things that you can do with your hands. No rocket science, nothing where you gotta come up with a huge amount of money at one time. So. The used boat market is just so reasonable. You know, and you consider, okay, what's the cheapest house you could get? Well, a 20-year-old 30-footer, which would be like minimal for crossing oceans, but perfectly doable, perfectly doable, depending on the state of its readiness and how new and fancy it is, it might cost between 20000 and 60000 for 60000 you could buy a turnkey operation where you could, if you already knew how to sail, right? If you already were a sailor and you knew what the gear was on the boat, you know, that you could – that when you bought it from, from afar, like you're on the West Coast, you're buying a boat in the Carolinas, that you could see what gear is on board that boat. For 60000 you could be like sailing out of Charleston Harbor in a week bound for Bermuda or anywhere on the planet. And you don't need permission of anybody so far. To you know, we don't need to zarpe out in in a lot of the world in South America, Central America. When you leave a port, you got to like request permission from the port captain. A <laughs> zarpe, it's like this certifies that I've paid all my bills and I don't. I'm not like absconding on debts. In America, you don't have to do that. You just leave. Okay, and it, it's interesting historically. Not much more than a hundred years ago, uh, turn of the 19th to 20th century, there were. And this is don't. I didn't do the scholarship on this. I read it on the internet, and I know, you know, what Abraham Lincoln said about the internet. So, you know, <laughs> right? so I mean, don't say Matt Bracken didn't, you know, quote it. But it said that what I read was that only Turkey and Russia in 1900 required an entrance visa. Really? Everywhere else in the world, everywhere else but Russia and Turkey, you could just show up and say, "Hey, man, I'm an American. You know, I got, I'm not a criminal." Can I come into your country? You know, wow. maybe I got a passport, maybe I don't. Whatever they were issuing then, but you just showed up and said, "This is who I am." And maybe they signed in like a hotel. Okay, welcome aboard. Only Russia and Turkey, you know, backward and and in their own way, you know, xenophobic. Only they required an entrance visa. The rest of the world was like, "Come on in. We got room." You know, you're not a criminal. You paid your way here. You, know, you got on a boat that cost money. You got a trunk. Come on in. Now most of the world, you've got to get official permission to leave. That's the state of the loss of freedom today. But as of 2015, I can get on my sailboat and just go out of the inlet, and then the whole world is 179 degrees. You know, and it connects to the whole rest of it. So if you were 
giving advice to somebody like me, let's say, so I'm almost 30. Now, my situation is a little different that I have a wife and two kids. Pretend that you were giving two alternate financial plans. As a novel writer, you think about this stuff a lot. Pretend, A, on the one hand, I was a young 30-year-old um, young man or young woman, single, uh, and been also as a family. And I had the dream to go and live this kind of lifestyle. But I'm from middle-class background, median income earner, working kind of a dead-end job. What would practically you do if you were going to go back and do it over again? Well, it, number one, the first fork in the road is is uh, being responsible for other human beings. And then that goes into a fork in the road of, okay, you got her, you know, your hot, young, supermodel wife, but no kids. And then you've got your hot, young, supermodel wife and some kids. So these are really different situations. Um, if you're the single guy, then you can live like a, you know, a, a Calcutta Cooley, um, <laughs> living in the boat yard, never shower when it rains, you know, and just you live in your hulk of a boat that you bought like as a wreck with major fiberglass damage when it sank after a hurricane. And, you know, you live in this thing with a with a poncho around you, you know what I mean? With a mosquito net over you. And gradually you put in your own sweat equity and you make this thing a nice new sailboat again. And that's how you get in it if you're a young guy. But you can't say to your wife and kids, honey, I got this great wreck of a boat and we're going to live <laughs> like the Swiss family Robinson. It'll be really hard and embarrassing and humiliating, you know, and painful and dirty a lot for the first year or two. But and some people do that. Now, if the wife says, I'm down for it, maybe, but, but don't put her in that position. You know, if you got a wife, you better just be able to, you know, pay the coin for a decent sailboat. Don't say, honey, first, we're going to learn how to grind fiberglass and, and what to do to keep it from getting in your skin and not breathing it and stuff, you know, but as a single guy, your options are much tougher because you were or more rugged because it's completely viable and people do it. As I speak, people are in boatyards all over the country doing this exact thing where they're buying the semi-wreck because that's the most bang for the buck. That Your sweat equity goes the furthest when you start with a – because the fiberglass is still fiberglass. It, it might be all nasty looking on the outside, but you can bring it back. That's a big problem with the boat building industry is how do you compete against 40 years of inventory that's just as good as what they made you know, last week. Who wants, who's buying one for a quarter of a million when you can get one for 25000 You know, does everything that the you – know, so, so you're going to pay 50000 for a 2015 uh, Camaro in nice condition, or you can pay uh, a tenth of that for a 71 Camaro in nice condition. Gee, that 71 Camaro, I dug it. It was great. You know, I mean, right. nothing wrong with it. It runs great. It's perfect. It's been restored. And it cost a tenth of a new Camaro? Who's going to buy a new Camaro? You'd have to be a fool. So that's how sailboats are. So knowing what you actually know, let's stick with just the single person example. Uh, would you shoot, how much money would you shoot to have saved? Uh, what I'm trying to get to is an actual practical budget, almost like Brad, uh, the character in your right. novel laid sure. out. In your mind, when you were writing his character, how much money did he have? How long had he worked? And what was his budget in getting started with his cruising? Perfect, that's a perfect way to frame it. You know, some people do shoestring it where they're going to actually have to, like, do manual labor. Sometimes they work in the boatyard. Like, some of the time during the day, they're actually working for the boatyard, scraping barnacles or whatever. And then, like, in the evenings and weekends, they're working on their own boat. But a person like Brad, he's coming into a project and he's just putting full time into that project. 
He's not trying to split between earning money. He's got the whole, he's got it in his pocket. And I would say, a, 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 to put it on the on the bigger side, which translates to a better chick magnet, because girls don't want to like. There, there are some don't you know, they don't want to crawl into like a day sailor where it's you got to like duck down and go horizontal right from the. And this is the cabin, and she's afraid that you're going to jump on her because she's already half laying down just to be in your cabin. You know, a 40 footer. Now it seems like, wow, this guy's got a nice spread. You know, he's he's uh, got some coin, this guy. So Brad's going for a 40 footer. He could have gone for a 30 footer. But he had just come back from the Anwar oil field. So he's flush with cash. He's been saving all of his money. I would say that if you had a hunt to put it like just you're going to go right at a project and your goal is to be out sailing, I would say a if Brad wasn't doing all the sweat equity and wasn't willing to put in a few months of like putting in a new engine, for example, a new mast, things like that. If you wanted more of a turnkey operation out of your hundred thousand dollar budget, you could buy a ready to go boat easy for 50,000 plus or minus a big percent that 50,000. It could, people would be saying 50,000, I'd buy a 80 footer for, you know, and then there's people <laughs> saying 50,000 wouldn't buy. So, it's just like anything in finances. When I say 50,000, I'm like, it's very elastic. But if he had come back from the Anwar with a hundred thousand, or if he went to Kabul and he's a contractor and he's, you know, making huge coin to risk getting blown up every day of his life. And I know people like that too, you know, God bless them. They got to, they got to, they're chasing the buck so they can be free. Right. But if, if, if you had a hundred thousand dollars, you'd be on easy street. You could have a cruising budget for the next three years after you bought your boat. That's almost turnkey. Maybe you're going to do a few upgrades because the boat's been sitting in a marina like most boats for 99% of its life. It never goes out. It's just sitting in a marina. So the, the doctor that owns it finally figures out it's like just a money hole for him. But the systems are kind of like, you know, he doesn't have any secondary electrical generation. It's not set up for cruising. So depending on many factors, I would say if you had $100,000, you could buy the boat completely outfit it and go for the next three years and never have to work a, a day in the next three years and figuring within the next three years, I'm going to encounter some financial opportunity. It might be running a dive shop in the tropical Island somewhere. You don't know. It might be Headhunter calls you on your uh, satellite text thing. They got little satellite text device called InReach that's made by the same people that do the Iridium sat phones. Delarm. Delarm. Yeah. In, it, it just text anywhere. You know, um, how did they say I'm on uh, base camp seven? We just had an avalanche and I'm, my body is half in the tent. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's got a little thing. And he's just texting right now. <laughs> so it's very cool communication wise. You can be anywhere on the planet, but you can still be in touch in a sense. You know, and there's many viable. All of these, this is viable. But, yeah, if, the guy, if somebody had going down this, if, if somebody had 50,000 cash and no encumbrances, Yes, absolutely. Launch right into this. So the interesting in that case, yeah, you, know, you might spend thirty thousand, and now you've got a budget year twenty thousand to be like upgrades to the boat and some budget to go sailing on. You know, but one I would the, say fifty thousand to one hundred thousand, and you're you're golden. One of the things that what? intrigues me, and the reason why I was asking for specific numbers, and so when I was a kid, my dream was to be Tom Clancy when I grew up, and so probably in some ways similar to you. I, I just loved reading fiction, and I thought it would be so fun to sit there with my computer and just sit out by the pool deck and write awesome novels that people enjoyed reading. Now, <laughs> I haven't quite uh, exercised those 
skills to the point where they're, I've written anything worth reading. But that was my my dream. And one of the things since I became a financial planner that I've often enjoyed looking for is what are the ways to achieve dreams faster and to not go through the long circuitous routes that many people take. And one of the things I like about uh, your character in the novel who's going out and doing manual labor and other characters from other novels as well is it demonstrates that with a little bit of hard work and a lot of planning, people can transfer themselves from a fairly normal situation into the kind of situation that many people dream of. When I've traveled, I've found people all throughout Central and South America who are, like you said, running a dive shop and they're living the the dream, but they didn't wait until they were 60 to retire and with a million dollars in the bank. They just said, you know what, I'm going to go work in the oil fields in North Dakota. The economy's booming up there. I'm going to buy a cheap truck right. and a cheap pickup truck camper. I'm going to live cheap up there. Then I'm going to take this and I'm going to do, like you said, I'm going to buy a oh. sailboat. And all of a sudden, there they are at 30 or 35 years old, maybe 10 years of work, 15 years of work, and they've knocked 30 years off the plan that a lot of times right. the middle manager uh, employee might have. Yeah, I was I was lucky because I was introduced to sailing as a lifestyle um, by flying down to the Caribbean in the se- early 70s, where a sister of mine and her, her Welsh husband, my brother-in-law, they were doing living this dream, but I got to, they were just on a little 33-foot wooden ex-racing boat, but I got to see that there were people on, you know, homemade 60-foot steel schooners, you know, ugly as hell. But they were out there, and they right. made it themselves. And it was like I, I, I met somebody in Hawaii on the Big Island. This was this is a cool story. So I sailed by myself from Panama to the Big Island to Guam. And I'm in the Big Island in this tiny little harbor, stern tide, like a medmore with the anchor out in front and like a plank or something. For me. So the boat comes in, he ties up near me. And it's Russians. I'm thinking, this is awesome. He's finishing a <laughs> circumnavigation back to to the the uh, Kamchatka Peninsula side. You know, whatever the the Archangel or not. Um, anyway, the Novosibirsk, whatever the you know the I forget the name of the cities. Uh, the the far eastern like San Francisco of Russia, but it's flipped okay. around. Okay. okay. Anyway. He had built this boat out of like wreckage in the collapse of the Soviet <laughs> Empire, when the when, out of like salvaged, you know, scrap commie crap. You wow, know what I mean? Wow. It was thrown together like you know, it's like functional, ugly works, but overall good enough design that like at a hundred yards it looks acceptable. But you can see up close how rough and ready it is. But all of his kids. So he's got this like beautiful blonde wife. He's this you know f- fantastic Russian guy. And he's got kids that are like, you know, from five to 10 on his boat, like a 40 footer. And he's got like at least three kids on board homeschooling them. They've learned English and French and German, you know, or not German, but like definitely English and French. So his kids have their whole life have circumnavigated. And he was like, yeah, I'm hoping that when I get back, because by the time he gets back, it's the whole glasnost has come. And now it's like you can just return because I'm I'm the first Russian circumnavigator and and I'm hoping to like turn it into a book, you know, because you know you got to have some income. I mean, it, he wasn't saying it exactly that way, but the kinds of jobs they had done all along the way, like as translators and like you know, unusual situations that they found themselves in places like Australia for like a year at a time, because they don't have the money to just do a push-on circumnavigation. They have no budget. It's not a fundme.com thing. You know, there's no website. They're doing it, and they have to like stay in all, in places like Australia or Chile or wherever for like a year at a time. 
Meanwhile, your kids adapt to that culture. They're like little sponges. So yeah, these are my heroes. These are my total heroes. And I, and I challenge anybody at, at, a, at loose ends. It's just thinking, you know, uh, stay here in the sticks or move to the big city. Nobody understands me. I don't have a skill. You know, whatever I know about IT, there's an Indian guy that is twice as good for half the money. So what, you know, I might as well just be brand extinct on my forehead right now. Get yourself a 30-footer and go. That's why I wrote it. <laughs> so that, you know? that provides us with a perfect place to pivot to the topic of publishing. And I'm interested, over the years, and again, feel free to share as much as you feel comfortable or as little as you feel comfortable, but over the years, have you been able to make some money publishing these novels to actually support yourself to be able to do the type of work that you love without the need for external income? This is the, this is the, um, I can only speak for me. I can't, you know, I'm not, this is just one anecdotal point. Okay. Um, it, I have four novels out. I wish I had five or six. I had hoped to be like one of, you know, every other year. I'm not like a guy that can write 50 novels in 20 years. I just can't do it (laughs) for many reasons. I can't do it. And I envy people that can slapdash books out, you know, that have like 29 pages in a, you know, I mean, 29 words in a, in a chapter, you know, with complete empty pages in between, and people seem to love them. My books are fairly dense. I wish I was a more concise writer. But okay, hold uh, on, I got I got to compliment you. Your book was exactly the kind of book that I enjoy reading, as far as detail rich, dense. Good. I felt like I got my money's worth when I finished Enemies Foreign and Domestic. I, I happily bought the rest of the trilogy because I knew I would get my money's work worth. Yeah, and that's and there one, were a that's, lot of books in that in your genre that really have disappointed me over the years. Yeah, and, and exactly. I, it, it's just begging. It's just it's. So this is this is how I came into it in a sense. At college age, I'm writing. Uh, you know, uh, uh, thrillers, political, nuclear war kind of stuff, Cold War stuff, and it just wasn't viable. So here I come. There, there, there's a um, fellow named Dan Pointer who who came into self-publishing sideways as a parachutist. So he has some manuscripts on parachutes and and with illustrations and so forth. He goes to publishers and they're like, "And how many do you think you're going to sell of these? Get the hell out of here!" So he decided to do it himself because he knew about this thing called. Um, non-bookstore book selling, which is like your pet store has shelves of pet books and your sewing department has a shelf and the music store has shelves of printed books. So he knew that there were a lot of venues. He could stick his parachute books right into the hands of parachutists in newsletters and catalogs and you know the, in the early phases of the internet. So he wrote the self, uh, self-publishing manual and he became like then a guru, not just a... So you were saying that he became a guru was right where you dropped right. off. Well, but, it, but it became viable. I, I was never of the mindset. I bought all of these books on how to get your novel published, you know, the writer's manual things. And it's basically like a cult of like write the perfect intro letter to get an agent because you can't even get near, you know, mega dinosaur publishing ink without an agent. It has to be the right agent. So you have to like become an expert at like this exotic uh 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 the 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 pitch letter that you're going to send and it's like come on if i got to go to new york city on my knees you know it's like okay so the only change is the atf are going to be the heroes and the the racist right-wing militias are going to be the villains i can do that you know no problem you know no problem whatever please just read my manuscript i said to the hell with that 
somebody more recently told me something that's been such a truism. This should be like a huge marketing Marty. Anyway, it's you know what the secret of niche publishing is? You, do you know the secret of niche publishing? I, I don't know. Find the people that like your stuff. Uh, Let me tell you the secret of niche publishing. They all work. <laughs> you can narrow cast. You can adjust your beam. You know, you don't have to be like a radar spewing it out 360. You can say, where's my market? Where's my audience? My audience is into Corvettes. And there's a Corvette club with 100,000 people that are shooting things about Corvettes back and forth with each other. And if your novel has a detective with Corvettes in it, you can make sure that all of those people that just dig the hell out of Corvettes has your detective that drives a Corvette. They're going to know about it. You don't have to just put it in Life magazine and hope that somebody that likes Corvettes and likes detectives happens to stumble on your title. It's, you, know, you can now find your audience. If your audience is, you know, no matter how narrow it is, you, your, your product can be more tailored. But the reason I mentioned this, I said, okay, if I was acceptable in New York City, you know, would they t- – let's say I got the agent and I'm going to pitch them a novel. It's going to have where the, the gun people aren't like drunken hillbillies from Deliverance, you know, with like a whiskey <laughs> bottle in one hand, shooting a gun, you know, slapping their wife, you know. All right. Quoting Bible verses, extrane, you know, ex- extemporaneously <laughs> while drinking and shooting, you know, and beating their wife. Yeah, that's what New York thinks of gunnies, right? That's what they think of people that have ever, you know, know what the Second Amendment's about. They think that we're out of deliverance. Okay, right. at best you're Burt Reynolds and watch, keep an eye on him. At worst, you're, you know, you're a hillbilly, <laughs> squeal like a pig. So, so I said, all right, let's turn lemons into le- lemonade by being a contrarian. And this is like lots of finance, you know, the, the contrarian strategy is, well, what's a novel that absolutely they wouldn't ever get near, you know, toxic, right. toxic. And isn't there a latent market? Because when I go shooting, the guy next to me, has got like, you know, $5,000 worth of optics and custom made <laughs> free floated, you know, his upper is a, you know, 6.5 Grendel. And he's like, you know, and I'm like, wow, man, my Bushmaster is like a, a Sears <laughs> Roebuck 22 yep. compared to your AR. And then he's got more of them, and it's like his hobby. And I'm like, well, these aren't the drunken hillbillies, you know, with a break-open shotgun that they think of in New York City. So in, in New York, the only guys that, with guns that are good are liberals, or they're in the FBI and they're liberals, or they're like work for the, F, the uh, CIA maybe at, and then they get kind of, but even then, you know, uh, Liam Neeson, he's kind of like a big lefty liberal. He shoots a bunch of guys, but they're always like Serbs or something. You know what I mean? They're, right. it, it's, they're a worthy, uh, you know, everybody hates kind of boo hiss the people he's shooting. But basically, you got to be a big liberal for Hollywood to allow you to shoot guns and express any kind of affection for guns or knowledge of guns or, you know, a hobbyism of guns. You have to be like, even Mel Gibson, he's kind of crazy the detective uh, when he was younger, you know, but he, at least he's a cop. So it's okay. He can wave the gun around, shoot people all over the street because he is a cop. Well, that meant that they, but they treat anybody that's a private citizen. They're like shaking their hands, like Barney Fife, like you can't shoot me as the guy walks up and takes the gun away. Oh, <laughs> it's like, these aren't the people I know that are shooters. So there's got to be a, and I'm watching TV all the time. It's just one insult after another. It's the same thing. Movies. So I'm thinking there has to be a huge latent market for people out there that are the guys with that are, you know, gun enthusiasts that support the Constitution and freedom. 
and where they're not the ill idiots and hillbillies, where they're actually the heroes. And that was that was a consideration of uh, in consideration of don't just make another detective genre like you're pitching to New York City. You know, that that same publisher has, you know, just selected 10, 10 by like Robert Ludlum level of ghostwriting, which is all they have today. You know, there's still Tom Clancy, this and that. And he's been, wait a minute, didn't he die? It doesn't matter. The, the name right. goes on, <laughs> you know, the name goes on. Out of the ashes, Johnston, the yep. name goes on. You know, the family says, we agree not to talk about the fact that he died 10 years ago. Keep sending royalty <laughs> checks. Thank you very much. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a good investment for his family. He's got, he created a perpetual annuity for them with his name. Exactly. With his name no recognition. problem. No problem. So when no you problem. started off, was this – you had long wanted to be a writer. Did right. you hope to, were you writing to scratch your own itch or were you hoping to actually make some money off of the sale of your books? Always wanted to make money off the sale of the books. Otherwise you can't justify to your family, you know, well, Matt's eccentric. He like plants rare tulips on the roof 10 hours a day because <laughs> he digs it. He just digs it. He thinks see, they're the most beautiful ever, you know, but <laughs> If it doesn't return any scratch, then eventually they say, well, eccentric in a bad way. You know what I mean? So if you're going to be eccentric, be eccentric in a good way, like build a big sailboat and write novels that people will actually read. Because I've had – and it's and there's a humiliation phase you go through in your like 30s, 40s, and early 50s. That's a, But you can get over this humiliation phase where people say, what's Matt going to be when he grows up? You know, And you're like 47 years old or something. So eventually there has to be a return on investment, but freedom has to come first. You know, that I'm very blessed and fortunate the way this thing worked out timing wise. I finally caught on a wave. I mean, we moved to San Diego. We were in military housing at a time when we thought it was a terrific opportunity to live in, in officer housing, very near SeaWorld and near Pacific beach. So we didn't go on the economy and buy a house. Everybody we knew that bought a falling down, shack in 2000 in san diego you know did a two or three bagger on it everybody you, you buy a hot dog stand and paint it and make it a house you triple your money so we didn't you know but finally we did arrive at a place where we did catch a little bit of a wave with self-publishing and ebooks and all of the rest of it but you can make a living at it it's a golden age of of self-publishing the, the it's so different but it's different in an old it's all it's great for everybody except for the publishers in New York. <laughs> you know, sorry. Right. <laughs> Never liked them anyway. So now the complaint is, but every kind of drivel and crap is out there and it's so hard to find a good book. Well, that's it in my in my world, that's called a level playing field. Right. Everybody right. gets to play. Right. You know, in, in The Shining, Jack Nicholson is it turns out he's just writing all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy over and over again for hundreds of pages. His wife thinks he's working on a novel. Um, well, you could upload that on Kindle and, you know, tomorrow, tomorrow people can buy it. If they think it's interesting, if they hit click, you know, purchase, you could do a blank novel with a period in the middle. If people click purchase, it's actually a kind of like a alternative to a GoFundMe. You can just like write an instant novel. Then maybe they'll, then they'll probably say that that's just a cover because you're a bigot trying to escape the scrutiny of the, uh, politically correct commissars you know what i mean like a bakery or a 
photography studio or something. But so far, they haven't shut me down. So I'm, so far, I'm like Jeff Bezos' number one fan. Yeah. Number one. Well, make sure, you, make sure you build things up because uh, things can change. I'd like to shift and talk about the topic of investing in case of societal change. So you're, pretty, you're a pretty hardcore guy. And that comes through a little bit in the interview, but even in some of the novels, you take some pretty hardcore uh, scenarios. And one of the things I love about novelists is you guys have a tendency to over-research everything to try to make sure that uh, things are the, the things are accurate. So in today's world, 2015, looking forward, do you have a personal approach to how you approach investing for your own family's future? And feel to feel free to be as broad or as narrow with that as possible as you as you are comfortable. I, I think that I think that all. I'm I'm almost starting to consider all of these what I would consider an electronic uh, investment, <laughs> you know, an enlist, an, an electronic instrument. I think that all of the electronic instruments could go poof in a blink, and um, they'll be about as useless as a uh, you know Confederate bond without the advantage of actually being a beautiful piece of uh, engraving work and calligraphy, you know, suitable for <laughs> mounting on the wall. You won't even have that. All you're going to have is you'll be able to say down, you know, down at the soup kitchen, you know, you wouldn't believe what I had in black rock. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what was that? I mean, like a black rock? Not exactly. You know, what happened? Well, it, it all went away. So I have a, I'm, I'm, I think it's a huge vote for, uh, of optimism, to have a bunch of your wealth right now in electronic instruments, you know, that are as real as our belief that the internet is real. But just like the internet was a you know, miracle when it came in, it can be a miracle when it goes out. And the reason I say that is I, I feel in very strongly in many levels that it's, it feels like 1914 and uh, I'm a farmer sitting there in the middle of, you know, East Prussia going, wow, there sure are a lot of trains going back and forth. You know, a lot of soldiers and cannons moving this way and that. I mean, China building up the islands in the South China Sea, and they're just, no, Obama doesn't. Obama is going to either do nothing or he'll do a huge miscalculation that could totally lead to an out-of-the-box genie scenario. Um, but in, in any event, no matter what the trigger is, whether the trigger is China, Iran, uh, Russia, uh, just a, a hack that totally takes out the entire Cisco connectivity of the world, the entire computer network system could just be whoosh, because the reason I say that is, you know, the, the, um, nobody is really worried that, I mean, of course, a nuclear holocaust is still a bad thing. It's not like it became a good thing. Mm -hmm. But a nuclear holocaust was unlikely because when you fired a missile across the pole, everybody saw where it took off. And now it's aiming for Chicago. You just blew up Chicago. That base in Russia just blew up Chicago. Well, man, we're pissed at you. We're firing one right back at you. And MAD worked against Russians. It has worked against the Chinese. It may or it may not work against the Iranians when they nuke up, and they will. We, that remains to be seen. But for sure, a way more devastating attack is not to put a nuclear fireball over Washington, D.C., it's to cut off electricity and the computer network to Washington, D.C. You don't have to EM, you know, you don't need to do anything that fires a missile with a return address, which makes the likelihood of this war scenario almost a certainty. If push comes to shove with Iran, with China, with Russia, with any of these guys, if push comes to shove, think about the Sony hack. That was just over a movie where he, we, 
you know, we uh, pissed off the, the dwarf over there. So we, it's kind of like a recon by fire. We shot a few rounds towards Korea and made them, you know, give away their positions. They act, you know, they, we tricked them into showing some of the cards they've got for cyber war. So it's a study point. You could almost consider that an electronic recon by fire. And they fell for it. You know, they fell for it. It's vanity. But imagine what China's got. That was like a few cards from the dwarf of North Korea, maybe. And, and another lesson of that is who's really sure it was North Korea? If any weapon where you're not even sure where it launched from is way more likely to be used. Let's say it is. Let's say poor North Korea was actually made a fool of and it was really Putin or Iran or somebody in South America that's got a dome on a mountain and he's just Dr. Evil. Who the hell knows? Any weapon where there's no return address is going to be used. And right now, the top target in every country, China, Russia, everywhere, it's our grid, our jugular vein. Don't worry about tanks in the desert. If that happens, it's rough on the guys in the tanks, of course. And don't worry necessarily about the nukes flying over the poles. That might happen later if we're if it becomes a total out-of-control furball, but definitely worry about attacks against the grid and the Cisco computer network system, the global system. Everything between our computers runs on Cisco. And that can be attacked on huge levels. Like our Stuxnet virus was so cleverly conceived, it got into Iran's secure uh, nuclear engineering systems to cause their centrifuges to wobble. Well, imagine how much easier it will be to cause generators to wobble that aren't even in protected sites in america you know to things to burn themselves up and it will be a sustained attack it won't be like some something launched once as we try to recover they'll have plans for knocking our recovery down and we'll be doing it to them so i suppose one of my biggest pieces of advice that lines back up with get yourself a 30 footer and go i'd be very leery of living in multi-million human being beehives anymore lately because the next war is going to shut everybody's power off. That's going to be target one. Remember, no return address. You hate the guys. You want to cause them ruin, whether you're ISIS or whoever. You hate them, and you want to cause them ruin. You want to cause maximum casualties. You do not need to lob a nuke over a city. There are many ways to shut off the power and the computers, which are intertwined like the nervous system and the, you know, you can't, for example, you just can't say, well, Matt, if they just take out the computer system, well, if then the grid will fail. I mean, because they're intertwined. You can't have the one without the other. And I'm very concerned that people are very blasé about this. I, I tell people investment, how about a well with a hand pump? Um, you know, every, what is your scenario if your power goes out? Well, uh, a backup water generator will run for a few days to do pump the final pumping stations, but eventually um, the system in a in a week or so, even your city water is gone. So what then? You know what are, what are you going to do then? You need water. The rule of fours: the air, the water, the food. Have you seen I mean, any? Because you've been around this world for a while, coming from your background in special forces and then writing about it for a long time. Have you seen people paying more attention? Because so my my challenge that I always face is my lack of experience as measured in years. And I haven't been paying attention to this world for a very long time. But even in my lifetime, it seems now, at least when I was a financial advisor, I 
even relatively normal mainstream people who weren't accustomed to thinking about disaster scenarios were constantly asking about potential disaster scenarios. And I perceived a change even in the, the six years I worked as a professional financial advisor. Do you see that's that happening among, in society? That's among people who are even reachable, that are even you know, tuned into a current events, you know, world history uh, understanding level. But the problem is that um, everybody today gets to custom customize their own fantasy, and this is very dangerous on a social level. You don't need to pay news, financial news. Okay, you know it's like what news? Well, that could be tornadoes in Oklahoma. I'll watch that for a you know minute. Uh, but something that's just dissecting like the uh, bailout for Greece, or do you think that one in one hundred people outside of your financial circle, if you walk up to anybody in the street and say what do you think about the uh, what do you think about the the, the currency uh, collapse in Greece that might be about to happen? They would number one, they'd say, Greece is that still a country? Or you know, I don't know. Where's Greece? So so among the people that we're even having this conversation with, we almost don't matter. We're like a, a clique of rabbis and you know uh, uh, on the Titanic. You know, so we're like in our own compartment. We're the super geniuses. Oh, if the designer had only, you know, I told him two more watertight compartments would have done it. You know, it doesn't matter. The rabbis go down with the Titanic, even though they, you know, before it even sinks, they've already got all the problems dissected and what shoulda, coulda, woulda. Doesn't matter. We don't matter. Everybody out there is just clicking to Fantasy Island that, and they get to determine, you know, which Fantasy Island they're on right now. So there's absolutely no need to be concern yourself with impending doom when you're mainlining electronic heroin, you know, through your uh, virtual reality widescreen TV. That's what I wish people would read *Alas, Brave New Babylon*, my short story. So what? One of the reasons why I don't have a new novel out. I just kind of switched over. Novels take so long to write. And what I wanted to say is things like what I saw at the coup and *Alas, Brave New Babylon*, because people are so switched into fantasy television that you know, it would literally take like an out-of-control train wreck coming through their house. You know, Amtrak would have to derail, come through their living room and take out their big screen TV. Then they'd say, <laughs> Martha, reality, look, it's in my living room. But until then, until then, it could be like, well, Operation Jade Helm 2017, we're now clearing out the uh, West Palm Beach nests of vipers. And people will just be like, oh, gosh, aren't, are they still on that? What's what's happening over on you know on uh, uh, American Idol you know <laughs> until the power goes out then it's going to be like wait a minute we're, we're the way I like to think of it you're in your shower completely lathered up full head of shap you know lather your beard half trimmed or whatever and it goes squeak and it's runs and so what is it and you're never going to see another drop of water come out of a pipe in the rest of your life you'll be like when you're old age you'll be like gathered around the campfire grandpa. Tell us about when clean, clear, drinkable water just came out of pipes everywhere. <laughs> so, so those types of scenarios make good fodder for novels. But I would – I mean my guess would be in real life you wouldn't quite – in a novel it seems to me like you need a, you need a, uh, a scenario that's a little bit beyond just to, just to be fun. I mean you don't you – don't, and I don't even I don't even have in my novels I don't even have like that because they when you right. watch movies like The Road right, it's right, like right. you know 
what's the point of going past, you know, utter desolation and misery and depression? You know, um, I like the semi, what I call it is semi dystopian. I like the process. Right. I like the, the collapsing empire scenario where the Ronin are looking for new gigs, you know, and they're, they're out, um, trying to stay free. And, uh, but I, I in like in the novel I'm writing now, you know, the, if you have a diesel engine and it's hadn't blown itself up, you know, and the belts and hoses are still good. It's still going to run as long as you got diesel. But what you're not going to have is the satellites and everything in between. You're not going to have GPS. So it'll be in, in some ways it's kind of, um, a retro view where, um, say the 1930s tramp steamer type of technology still works. Magnetic compass still shows north. Sextant, if you know what to do with a sextant and you have a time tick, you know, would be one of the last things that you would need is a time tick, which it can get on radio if some government out there is doing a time tick. But if you don't have a a, a anchor to uh, accurate time, then even um, uh, longitude you lose pretty quickly. So then you're back to sailing latitudes. But I mean, Technology will still work during the entropy scenario, but depending on what you've got and how far it is. Wouldn't you assume, though, that in a difficult situation for whatever reason, whether a financial crisis or, or anything, that there's a period of unrest, there's a period of challenge, and then society is quickly reassembled and systems no. of support are, are relatively quickly brought no, back? I don't, I don't assume that at all because I do not assume that at all. Because there there are a few differences now, um, I, I, I would I would recommend reading uh, watching a movie on YouTube called The Last Valley, set in the 1600s, the the um, Thirty Years' War in a little valley in Austria. But watch this movie and now give every make instead of Protestants and Catholics make it uh, Muslims versus everybody else. Give everybody AK-47s and ATVs and. Um, you can wipe out civilization pretty profoundly. You know, you can take it down to the roots and burn the roots, depending. Now, they Europe came out of that. But a lesson of that era, it also happened a little later in 1640s with Cromwell's invasion of Ireland. You don't need to set up Auschwitz to, like, wipe out half or a third of a population. All you have to do is drive them out of their villages, you know, burn their thatched roofs. They don't harvest their potatoes. They're, like, living it on the run for a period the winter and illness and uh, drinking ditch water does the rest. You can wipe out a third of a population. That's when everybody lived right where they grew food. So it'll be worse today because our just-in-time, perfectly intermeshed world where you know roses are flown in from uh, Colombia on a you know giant wide-body jet loaded with roses and distributed all around the world. So we think that like having a fresh rose is like just a average ordinary thing. It's not. It's we're in the middle of a huge Swiss watch, and you can't just yank out a few cogs and say, "Bang on it a few times." She'll be running again. No, she won't. If the grid goes down for a week, um, I'm afraid that our cities are going to absolutely explode and burn one week, because the supermarkets will be looted in three days, and then there will be a panic contagion, where everybody's main lesson will be, "Don't listen to the people that say don't loot." We're going to set up distribution in a few days. Those people that stayed home and listened, didn't, didn't loot had got no food because by the time they got to the supermarket, it was a burned-out shell. So everybody will learn from the first city suffering a looting contagion to get there first. So the food is gone. I don't know if you ever worked on diesel engines, but there's a, um, there's a situation when you take your high-pressure uh, fuel delivery apart leading from your high-pressure pumps to your injectors. 
you take that all apart to fix something or modify something, put a new injector, change oil, whatever. No matter how much of a hurry you're in, you can't stomp on the accelerator, turn the key, and make the thing go. Everything's got to be put back together very meticulously, piece by piece by piece. And then you have to purge the air out of the system laboriously, joint by joint by joint, all the way to the injectors. And then you can start, no matter what a hurry you're in, you can't hurry it up. Zombies are coming, people are aiming guns at you, you can't hurry it up. If our system, our food delivery system stops, is interrupted for one week, our cities absolutely go out of their minds berserk. Then the di- the, everything changes. The economics of food delivery now is in a post-looting world where the same 18-wheeler that could travel unimpeded to your local grocery store last week, it can't anymore. You know, one driver, no security, no gun, he's driving 60 feet of, you know, of meat, frozen meat to your store, and nobody's guarding him. Well, a week later, now that's Fort Knox on wheels. Every fuel tanker, everything. It, the the 18-wheelers run out of fuel in three days. Truck stops, everything. They, they, that's how America moves at the retail level is in 18-wheelers. Trains have their own situation. But the trucks are looted to the axles in three days, and it becomes very hard to break this airlock and get the food delivery system restarted into the cities, short of a massive level of martial law and Jade Helm times a billion, I don't think that they have the manpower to do it. You know, that it, a couple hundred IRA tied down, you know, 10,000 Brits in Ireland for a generation. Cities that are completely out of control are not going to be put back in control by National Guard troops brought in from the suburbs. It, and plus the active duty and everything else. Humpty Dumpty, when it breaks, is going to be very hard to fix. Our cities become ungovernable Mogadishus in a week. And you, and you remember, Mogadishu did, at various times, have electrical grid running and, fresh, and water plumbing. And then at times it didn't. You know, it, it has been broken and rebuilt several times. But Mogadishu has lessons for all of us. People, you know, people call Memphis Mogadishu on the Mississippi. Well, imagine Memphis with no electricity. In a week, it's completely out of control and hard to fix. So coming back from that won't be uh, an easy, pleasant, or legal experience, and it's going to be very likely that if you can come back from that, the level of martial law will be so harsh, so harsh. It'll be Cambodia-level reordering of society of just the only way we can deliver food is some bureaucrat orders everybody in this zip code to get on the buses, and they resist. Katie, bar the door. Just a normal distribution where trucks are going to reflow the the system, the burned out supermarkets, you know, the looted convenience stores burned out everything in between them, and we're just going to start that up again. I'm sorry, you can't restart a corpse in a sense, and that's in a sense what you would have after a week with no electricity in a major American city. I mean, the windows will be broken out of the office buildings, the sewage just the Picture every high-rise, anything over three or four stories, every high-rise. Takes a lot of pressure to pump water up, and then the sewage has to be taken out. What we know happens, you know, I'm not inventing this about the future. I'm witnessing what happens in places like Srebrenica and other places. What's Srebrenica? I've never heard of that. Bosnia, the city that was the host of the the Winter Olympics, like in uh, 1990 or 1988 or something, you know. Katarina Witt was a hot commie chick that won a gold medal for figure skating. 
She's got great YouTubes. Anyway, she was in Srebrenica. It became then a Holocaust city, you know, of a tripart, a three-way civil war with Srebrenica, kind of as getting artillery from all directions, sniper alley, one apartment block sniping at another apartment block, you know, where you're just living in a, a high-rise becomes a hellhole. In other words, got it. You know, and and nowhere that you want to be living. So, what do you do practically to? So the, the challenge that I always face, especially it's a real burden as a financial advisor to know how to talk through situations. And I've learned to be slow in just to be slow in terms of automatically saying, well, this is I know exactly what's going to happen or I know exactly what's not going to happen. I don't know. History, you start studying enough history and all of a sudden you find that it's probably there are a lot of crazy things that have happened and probably none of it is kind of like what you – but we have some differences now. You know, we can learn from history. Right. There have been many situations. You, know, you look at the uh, um, uh, in New, New Mexico, the um, Pueblo dwelling Indians. You know, they just did or Easter Island. Now that's one of like a takes taking a generation or a couple generations time scale. But big cities can suddenly empty out, and you go, "Why? What happened? Everything was running there, and then suddenly there's like a paroxysm of mass violence where all the peasants slaughter all the nobles." And then nobody's there in 10 years. It's like, what happened? Boy, something really crazy happened in that city that it suddenly went haywire. And, and so when you do financial planning or any kind of risk analysis, you say, all right, what are the downside and upside risks? And how, do you, right. how, how are we going to hedge various things? And how are we going to balance various things? Well, if, if I'm right about in any war scenario, our grid being a number one target, everybody's going to hit the grid because it's deniable. China can say, not us. We love you guys. Keep buying our stuff while they're hitting our grid. But it's going to be filtered to look like it's ISIS, for example. Or the, you know, anyway, if I'm right, you don't want to be in a city high rise. All right. Can we start there? Okay. If, okay. I, if I'm right, a 30 foot sailboat would be a much nicer place that's, you know, a mile from an ocean inlet than, uh, you know, downtown Washington high rise or downtown New York, or downtown anywhere, if I'm right. I hope I'm wrong. I mean, I hope everybody's laughing at me in 10 years. Matt Bracken, what an idiot. You know, <laughs> things are better than ever. Ever since they invented unobtainium, and we've all got the fusion DeLorean, you know, and we can just, you know, Matt Bracken, boy, what a pessimist he was. That's, I want to be that. I want to be the guy that's like, everybody's kicking sand on me at the beach, saying what an idiot he was. Is what I don't want my kids going through what I, I see as potentially a, a, around the corner. If we have any kind of a war, our grids are going to be attacked, not with rockets that have a return address, but sneaky through through cyber techniques. And when that happens, you know, a lot of negative consequences could ensue. What better time to be out on a sailboat? If you're already at a loss for what to do and you don't want to work for, you know, Corporation XYZ and you don't want to work at Walmart as a shelf stalker and, you know, you, you maybe your job got outsourced or whatever, your trade is a dying trade. If you can work with your hands, I always tell people, young men, number one, never be afraid to work with your hands. I have, a, in many ways, much more respect for blue-collar workers and white-collar workers. Having worked with in office environment and construction site environments, I found that there's much less political duplicity and backstabbing among men that work with their hands. So it's right there. There's a benefit. And always, when I look over a mechanic's shoulder, I'm I'm always saying, "Huh, makes sense to me. That ain't rocket science. I could learn that if I wanted to." Well, you can learn fiberglass repair. You can learn 
how to put in a 12 volt, you know, pump on a boat. It's not rocket science. You know, guys that are hillbillies do it all the time with hot rods and everything else. You think they're smarter than you are? Hell no. So yeah, you can absolutely get a houseboat, a sailboat, a trawler. It's a viable option. You can still live at the city, work at the firm. You know, it's just that you have that quirk at the office parties. Everybody will say, you know, Joshua, do you know Joshua lives on a boat? Really? What kind? Oh, a houseboat. Yeah, it's right down at the marina that's down by the micro, the new microbrew, you know, where the sailboats are all anchored. It's a good place to be, you know. I mean, nobody's saying, like, he's a prepper. He's living in a bunker. He moved to Montana with his family, made him live in plywood shacks, you know, with rammed earth walls. He's a more, you know, he's crazy. So you can be a total prepper in a sense. But in my version of prepperdom, I put a much higher premium on mobility. I don't want to be in a siege situation like a Mount Carmel or a Ruby Ridge. You know, eventually they got your latitude and longitude and they just start bringing the heavy guns in and they can wait you out, <laughs> whoever they is, right? I mean, just um, I'd rather be an independent operator who can get out on the ocean and spin the compass around a few times. You know, I, I just think that there's value in mobility more than, you know, the digging in somewhere. It's one of the things of- that just why I was intrigued and I kind of baited you to go into all that. Number one, because I think it's important to talk about, uh, but and it's stuff that we often don't, don't talk about because it's hard because it requires for you to think about something requires you to go someplace that you don't usually want to go. You know, when I think about what happens to my family, if I die, um, for many people, that's an unpleasant thought, but you have to go there and then you go there and you do some planning and you get some life insurance and you, you know, you, you drop your will in your estate and you make sure that your family knows what your wishes are. And then once you've gone there, you can pull back a little bit and, uh, just not worry so much about it. And if it happens, it happens, but you hope it doesn't, uh, at least not in the short term. But one of the things that I just thought, think was interesting is I look for the, solutions to life which can work in many situations and in you know in all situations and what's funny about the boating theme of our conversation today i always loved that scene in uh, was the movie you've got mail where mr fox the bookstore owner there's a scene where he's at the dock and there's three boats lined up and here are these rich bookstore tycoons and there's the old traditional uh, sailing yacht for the grandfather. Then there's, I think, the trawler, the classic 80s trawler look for the father. And then he's got the sleek young super yacht or something like that lined up. Fox 1, Fox 2, Fox 3. And it's funny because down here on Palm Beach, I often notice that a lot of people down here, they've got their escape hatch. And it's a different, it's a different looking escape hatch, but they just you know, toss off the bow lines and fire it up. And there's some beautiful well, boats down here. And it's an escape hatch. Seen, I've seen guys in the – I was in the Bahamas last year, and I saw people that had some very cool escape escape pods that were um, – multi-hulls are definitely – catamarans in particular, above 40 feet. Catamaran doesn't work so much in smaller sizes, but you talk about you know a 60-foot deluxe catamaran that somebody spent maybe you know $2 million on, and it's got a satellite dome on the back. Right. And inside of that dome is a little thing that stays steady no matter what. You know, the boat's moving around. It's like locked on to its satellite. And he's pulling down, you know, uh, broadband in the middle of nowhere. No problem. He's air conditioned. He's connected. He's got a, you know, like a 15 foot rib with its own little crane. It's a rigid inflatable boat with like a 50 horsepower console where you sit like on a motorcycle seat, you know, in the middle, not like sitting on the tube in the back, like the little boats. Yeah. And these are like guys that are like, they've, 
made a pile or they're maybe they're still operating their business from afar, but they are definitely keeping very close to the ocean. It's right. a, it's considered one of the a lot of people that are um, doing this. I think that if you scratch below the surface, it's like well, I thought about Belize, but I heard stories about people being like accosted and you know the policia come in and start demanding uh, tribute, so to speak. Even though you just were a libertarian that wanted to like build your own place in wherever, you know, Costa Wonderful, and uh, you find out that you're just, you know, throwing yourself like bait into a shark pond where they're saying, come down, gringos, and <laughs> bring your money. <laughs> and five years later, it's like, I'll take it after you build it up. A sailboat gives you the option to, or not a powerboat, you know, houseboat in the southeast of Florida. Perfect. If your local sheriff doesn't like people living on boats at anchor, as you know, real world Florida situation, you just say, you know, Fujimo which is uh, something you jack them moving out. You just take your act on the road, you know, pull up the anchor. And the cool thing about, you know, that kind of thought process and whether it's a sailboat or whether it's something else is I think it gives you the opportunity to almost wait out the economy. If you have the ability to, uh, you know, you've dreamed of a round-the-world sail and you've bought your boat and you've equipped it and you've been working on it, and all of a sudden you recognize that your business is, is... is going down. There's a story I've told on the show several times, but I'll tell it to you just because it, it's so meaningful to me because I knew the guy. He was a, a rich, a, a rich old co- uh, construction contractor. And in 2000, I met him in 2009, 2010. And he said, basically putting the story short, he had been through three recessions or four recessions. It wasn't his first recession that he had ever faced. Most of his workers were contractors. He he'd terminated all their contracts. He'd laid off a bunch it of off. people. He parked all the trucks and he bought a boat from some guy that was going out of business and he was spending, he was just waiting out the recession going fishing every day. And he'd bought the deal on his fishing boat and he was just waiting out the recession. And so what I look at with things like what you're saying is is assume that we go into another recession, you wind up and uh, barring, uh, you know, end of the world as we know it type of, of scenario, which you outlined, you just go into a period of economic malaise for a few years. If you've planned and you go ahead and say, I'm going to go ahead and make this my time to sail around the world. Meanwhile, you're working on writing your novels or you're working, in my case, on your podcast or you're working on whatever it is that your projects are and you can do those from the road. You might be able to live a really great life no matter what happens and come out the, the other side in a better position. Yeah, the, the, um, the kind of the genesis of the houseboat um, you know, everybody knows the genesis of NASCAR, that it came out of like the moonshine running, you know, hot rods. Um, the genesis of the houseboat was that during the Great Depression, it was a place that a man could be free and un- unchaste, un- unpursued hmm. in, uh, in that sense, not under any sheriff's jurisdiction. You could acquire a barge and just put a shack on it, tow it out, throw off the anchor and say, you basically, you know, the hell with all your land rules. I'm just going to sit out here and fish. I'm going to swim and fish and trade with my neighbors and kind of like be a proto hippie of the, of the, you know, the great depression era. And this appealed to so many people. It actually became a subject of a little bit of romanticism, like the freedom of like, you know, where everywhere else you're like a beaten down sharecropper, you know, oppressed of the earth. And you finally just say, I'm not playing the land rules. You know, I know somebody has got a barge that I can patch up and put a shack on it, and I'm just not – no real estate deal, no closing cost, no mortgage, no bank, none of that. Barge, house, go. And that was the – and that became the houseboat, which is still a very viable option for many more people than can sail because sailing requires 
bit of athleticism, endurance, uh, things like that, balance. Um, a houseboat, anybody that can roll a wheelchair could have a wheelchair houseboat. And they could travel from Brownsville, Texas, to you know Long Island Sound, to the Great Lakes, all on protected waterways, but so much of it that you could just disappear into vast wilderness areas, even in the southeast, and wait it out while whatever things are happening in cities with soup lines and riots or whatever's happening. Hopefully none of that happens. When I do the power out scenario, I'm not saying, quote Matt Bracken, he says the power is going out. I'm saying that's like a, that's a boundary on one side. That's like an right, equation. The and there's, a, there's a wall on one side, power goes out, and, the, and then there's like different axes that shoot off like freedom versus you know, totalitarianism. And then you can split that left, right, or any way you want to go. But basically, I, I see at least a slow slide in front of us. I don't see like happy days are here again. I think that um, any pl- any opportunity to like escape the matrix, which is your name, your social security number is associated with an email address, bank account numbers, and a house. And Google even came by your house and took a picture of it in case anybody wants to know what your house looks like. Yep. So you go on yep. whitepages.com and look up your favorite celebrity, and you can like do Google Street View all, all around, and then you can bring down Google Earth and look what's in his backyard as of a couple months ago, maybe. But you know, to be mobile means a lot. Now, a lot at the upper, at the top one tenth of the one percenters. These guys, yeah, they have real estate, but they got lots of real estate. They also got a mansion in Patagonia with a jet runway, you know what I mean, and a diesel fuel generator for years. So, yeah, the guy might spend a lot of time in Manhattan, but he's got a plan to get to Patagonia. I'm just saying I can't afford Manhattan or Patagonia, but I can go both places on a sailboat. Or a house, well, a houseboat would be tough. Patagonia would be tough on a houseboat. <laughs> it would be. That'd be a, that would be tough. You'd rig up a sale. Matt, this has been perfect. I've really enjoyed uh, our conversation today. I want to make sure that people know where to find your novels. Do you prefer them just go straight to Amazon or do you send them to your website? How do you like people to find your novels? It doesn't doesn't matter. Um, Enemies, Foreign and Domestic, Matt Bracken will take you to my website, which has lots of links. Also, my um, novels are on Amazon. My short stuff, if people – look, I love that you'd like the detailed density of my novels – but a lot of people, I don't care whether it's more spare or lean or, or you know, rich that way. Um, most people can't read a novel that's more than 200 pages. They're just not. And short stories that I've written that are available in the Bracken Anthology, I would recommend that as an entree point for people that are not sure if they want to, like, commit to a humongous novel. And most of those short stories are linked on my website on the links page. And I would start with things like um, what I saw at the coup. Uh, the CW2 Cube, um, When the Music Stops, How Our Cities May Explode in Violence, <laughs> cheerful stuff like that. Yeah, I was going to say, you are like, um, you're the life of the party, aren't you? <laughs> also, but also, um, like, I have sh- good short stuff, concise stuff, like Trapping Feral Pigs and Other Parables of Modern Life. You know, so, so I have um, a lot of stuff that's at, at the entry level for people that just don't want to spend a dime or download a humongous book. Because... Even going back to when I was starting writing EFAD, I thought if my books, if people consider them prescient, if people say, wow, he wrote that in 2003, I guess I'll listen to him now with what he has to say about 2016. 
because the guys that said in 2003, they said, Matt Bracken, he's full of it. What a bunch of hyperbole. ATF doing a scam that would lead to hundreds of people being killed. They'd never do that. You know? Well, we know that they did. And we know that the media is happy to cover it up. So we, you know, some of the things that I've written about, it gives me a, a soapbox in a sense. And what I really want to say, I'll put out in a short form, like what I saw at the coup or, you know, and of, and of course, I'm always I'm always writing as well for the um, and the reason I do podcasts and radio obscure radio broadcasts, because there's an immediate audience that you're trying to reach. And I hope we we both reach with Facebook, et cetera. But then there's also all the boys and girls down in the fusion centers. And I consider these like to be kind of like an open letter. You know, what is the state of right wing extremist, um, you know, political theory and philosophical thought? You know, where are the. Matt Bracken is one of these guys that is on that side, the bitter clinger nation. You know, they're kind of dangerous. <laughs> the Department of Homeland Security said, keep an eye on people that really consider the Constitution important. They're dangerous. <laughs> so I consider these podcasts sort of a straight pipeline right to the Fusion Center. I like it. <laughs> Matt, thanks so much for coming on. This has been awesome. <laughs> Pretty cool to talk to someone who's been there, done that, and built for themselves their own lifestyle of freedom. I hope you can take some of these ideas and integrate them into your own life. If you are interested in uh, Matthew's novels, I can't recommend them highly enough. If you're interested in that kind of uh, thriller type of uh, fiction, that genre type of fiction, his books are very well written. And I like them a lot more than I like a lot of the, uh, I guess, the dystopian genre. A lot of those the plots just to me are pretty far out. Uh, and all of a sudden you wind up with people you know, driving around in tanks and eating each other. And I guess theoretically that's possible. It's happened before in the history of the world. Uh, but to me, it just doesn't seem very likely uh, based upon where we are as a society at this point. And, uh, but his, his thrillers are around a much more practical type of scenario, much more uh, the norm that we face. What happens in case of political overreach, massive bureaucracy, uh, power-hungry politicians, kind of interesting. Uh, much more, in my mind, realistic than what many of the other uh, authors in this genre talk about. There are three novels in the Enemies Foreign and Domestic series. You can read extensive excerpts from them on his website if you're interested. Uh, the first was Enemies Foreign and Domestic. Second one is Domestic Enemies, The Reconquista. And then Foreign Enemies and Traitors uh, is the third in the trilogy. Uh, excellent. Also, his fourth novel is Castigo K, a very different style of novel, but uh, also good in its own right. So check out his novels. I hope you enjoy that. He's written on his essay on his website a number of essays. The link to Get Yourself a 30-Footer and Go is there. And then if you're into some of the pretty hardcore uh, uh, survivalist stuff and, and you know what happens in societal breakdown and things like that, uh, he's a, a very politically incorrect writer. But you may enjoy reading some of his essays on those subjects as well. So in the meantime, though, I don't know if I'm inspired to go get a, a boat. I don't know. It's It might be. It's not going to be for at least the next couple of years, but <laughs> he does build a strong case for it, and I hope that uh, that's been helpful to you. Thank you all so much for listening to today's show. If you've enjoyed this type of content, I'd appreciate it if you become a patron of the show and support the show directly with your financial support. That's an entirely voluntary program. You are free to do it if you want to and free to ignore it if you don't want to. Uh, but details of that can be found at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. There are a number of incentives there for you at different levels of support. The minimum level is a buck a month. That's hugely meaningful. Or come on over and check out some of the other benefits at three, five, ten, and $200 a month. Thank you all so much for listening. Be back with you tomorrow.
Thank you for listening to today's show. Please subscribe to the podcast with our free mobile app so you don't miss a single episode. Just search the app store on your device for Radical Personal Finance and you'll find our free app. If you have received value from the content of this show, please consider becoming a patron. Your financial support is how I pay the bills for the show and how I plan to grow our content. You can support the show with as little as a dollar a month or as much as you feel the content is worth. Details are at radicalpersonalfinance.com slash patron. If you'd like to contact me personally, my email address is joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com or connect with the show on Twitter at RadicalPF and at facebook.com slash radicalpersonalfinance. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. But your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. Please develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them, because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please come by the show page and comment so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for being here.